This is Crossroads, a Get Religion podcast. It is not unusual for politicians to show up on Sunday morning. Sometimes they're just sitting in the pew. Maybe they're acknowledged from the pulpit, and sometimes they take the pulpit. Now, the media seems a little more alarmed about Republicans doing this than they do Democrats doing it. Why is that? Greetings and welcome to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Terry is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He is author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, welcome back. Glad to be here. So for context here, legally, what is the Johnson Amendment? The Johnson and Johnson Amendment uh, amendment is LBJ. And the whole idea was people were started to get worried. My own personal opinion, and I studied this as a part of my church state studies degree, I think it was primarily a form of anti-Catholicism. People in the wake of the election of JFK, there were a lot of Protestants and a lot of other people who were worried about the Roman Catholic Church becoming a real powerhouse in American religion, and they wanted to make sure that there was a law that prevented churches from becoming active in partisan politics. Now, it's crucial to stress the word partisan. That's the main thing we're going to be talking about, in fact, here today, is whether the media understands that churches are not supposed to be endorsing specific people for office in a partisan political way. And the tricky part of all this is why is it more important to keep churches from endorsing candidates as opposed to other forms of nonprofits, think tanks, academic organizations, some forms of labor groups, etc.? Is it uniquely dangerous when religious groups endorse candidates? Some people really seem to think it is. And then you have people who are trying really hard to be consistent First Amendment defenders and saying we've got to be very narrow about what we forbid churches from doing because we don't want to take that right away from a whole range of nonprofit groups in American life because of the First Amendment. And we also don't want to say that it's more dangerous when religious people do it than when totally secular people do it. So the Johnson administration comes from a very particular moment in American political history, and I think it's very important for people to realize it didn't happen in response to the uh, religious right, for example. I talk to people all the time who assume the Johnson administration was an attempt to crack down on Trump supporters or the religious right or this, that, or the other. It actually comes from several decades before that, and it even really comes before the abortion debates really ramp up questions about political speech uh, in religious organizations. So does the press coverage of the Johnson Amendment make any sense? Do political reporters seem to know what's going on there? The short answer is no. This is something you and I've talked about for years, and I'm sorry to repeat kind of one of the official get religion 
cliches or mantras, but it's true. A lot of press coverage seems to say that basically there are good forms of religion and there are bad forms of religion. And we're in favor of good forms of religion and we're opposed to bad forms of religion. And it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that the religious right is the ultimate example of a bad form of religion. And there's this myth going around that conservative churches are like way more politically active than any other churches and that they're endorsing candidates all over the place. And please hear me say there are problems out there, and I believe they need to be covered. But it's important for reporters to understand what is a violation of the Johnson Amendment and what isn't a violation of the Johnson Amendment. And it's just as bad for someone to stand up in a pulpit and say, we saw press coverage of this last week, Herschel Walker is terrible and God opposes people that are this dumb and say crazy things and treats women the way he has before in his life. God wants you to support. So it's just as bad to attack Herschel Walker as it would be for someone to stand up in a different pulpit and praise the current ordained minister who is senator from Georgia. It's speech is problematic, whether it takes place in a Catholic pulpit, Protestant pulpit, a Pentecostal pulpit. Speech has the same standards of legality when it's in a white evangelical megachurch as when it's in a black megachurch. And the press, if you read the coverage, they're really convinced that certain forms of religion are dangerous and others are not dangerous. Some forms are really, really good and some forms are not good. It's fascinating to watch it. And quite frankly, it's the exact kind of a subject that when it's written by political reporters, is handled very badly. But when you see it covered by religion beat reporters, you tend to get much more nuanced and quality coverage. Terry, I've been monitoring elections as a part of this job for more than two decades, and I can say with a high degree of confidence that I've watched or read about Democratic candidates speaking during Sunday morning church services much more than Republican candidates. Is this a news story? Well, it is a news story, but to be specific, the question is whether it's a violation of the Johnson Act. And it may or may not. So I think it would be handy for our listeners to to hear something I wrote in a post. This week we're actually talking about a post that I wrote at Get Religion on Monday, and then I'm going to do an update here in a couple of days when we get ready for this to go up as a podcast. So here's my point. I wrote up four things that you tend to read about in the press. And these are four different things that religion look like when it shows up in a church. So let me read these. Number one, religious leaders stressing that doctrines are centuries of what their church believes, their traditions have strong implication for public debates about issues ranging from abortion to the environment, from economic justice to systematic racism. And you see this all the time on the left and right. Now, if a candidate stands up in a pulpit, I've been invited here today, especially if it's like a forum and not an actual church service, and he says something like, now, this church cannot endorse candidates. But what I'm here to talk about today 
is why abortion law is so important and why we need to defend what our church teaches on it. Now, that's not a violation of the Johnson Amendment. He's talking about an issue, and he's talking about a religious stance. And what we've seen, there was a a story the other day from the Associated Press about the Georgia race, and we saw them covering events where Herschel Walker talked about what God believes about abortion, and then we saw coverage of events where Senator Warnock did exactly the same thing, although coming from a different theological perspective. That's not, I mean, you can say, well, we all know, hint, hint, that the church is endorsing their candidacy. Well, that's true, but they didn't say it. They didn't openly endorse someone, or they didn't specifically attack someone exclusively. Now, one of the nuances here is, is it wrong for a church to attack a candidate by name? My personal opinion is that it is. But let's go and look at the other two. So number two is I think what you were talking about just a second ago, Todd. Pastors invite political candidates to attend services, and they kind of wave at the congregation after the leaders note that they invited the other candidates to attend and they didn't show up, kind of hint, hint. And what you'll hear pastors say is something like, well, you know, Senator so-and-so, he's been a friend of our church for decades now. We've done all kinds of things good for our community together. He's a fine man. Then they leave it at that. Now, was that an endorsement? Well, it kind of functions as one, but you'll frequently hear variations of what Ronald Reagan said in the famous speech where he spoke to a massive body of evangelicals in Texas. And Reagan, one of the turning points in his political career, Reagan got up and looked at them and said, now, look, I know the law. I know that you guys cannot endorse me, but I came here today to tell you that I endorse you. I understand what your concerns are, and I agree with you. Was that a violation of the Johnson administration? Well, the ministers didn't say anything. They invited, so that was a very clever Ronald Reagan move. And that's the sort of reference that makes people wonder if the Johnson Amendment is actually enforceable. Well, anyway, case study number three this pastors invite political candidates to speak to their congregation and why they need to get out and vote. And by the way, we're all in this together when it comes to racial justice or social justice or labor or environment or, yeah, abortion, opposition to woke culture, et cetera. Clergy make similar remarks that, you know, here we go. And this candidate has been a friend of ours for years. That's a much more explicit forum setting that seems to have been created like a political rally. But is that the church as an institution or endorsing them? Well, quite frankly, courts have found that it isn't. And also, you'll sometimes hear a pastor say something like, now look, my church cannot endorse political candidates for perfectly good legal reasons. But I've known this man just so I'm speaking just for myself. I've known this man for a long time, and I trust him. Now, is that an endorsement by the church? The minister explicitly said it wasn't. What does that mean? Once again, lots of fog, lots of bells and whistles, lots of unclear stuff. And then finally, we have had some cases where clergy have stood up in their pulpits and openly endorsed a candidate by name and have said things like, you've got to get out and vote Democratic this year, 
or we're going to lose our democracy or you've got to get out there and vote for Trump's candidates this year or we're going to lose America and Satan is going to reign in America. Well, that's where courts really start getting interested in the whole thing. It seems like a slam dunk. And then you'll actually have some people say, I don't care about the Johnson Amendment. I believe in free speech, and I say this guy's God's man. There have been some cases like that. And I think the press is usually surprised to learn that this activity occurs just as much or even more on the left than it does on the right. I don't think you would ever know that from the political coverage. One of our members of the Get Religion team, Ryan Berg, the political scientist, who also happens to be a liberal progressive Baptist minister, he did a very controversial article for Religion News Service, and we ran a variation on it at Get Religion, in which he noted that people who attend liberal churches are three or four times more likely to hear political messages than they are if they attend conservative churches. I think if you read the coverage in American newspapers, you would never know that. And he cited a very interesting case when looking for, at survey material and when asking questions about this survey. They asked about the January 6th insurrection, and they basically came up with the fact that liberals were three times more likely to hear their pastor attack Donald Trump as a election denier and that being pro-riot on January 6th. They were three times more likely to hear that in a liberal church than they were to hear a conservative pastor say anything positive about Donald Trump let alone anything positive about January 6th. Yet if you read the coverage, the coverage has focused on this new rising Christian nationalism that apparently, did I miss something on election night where there are lots of polling places bombed by Christians and white nationalists and whatever? I, I, I seem to have missed that. But the simple fact of the matter is the press doesn't seem to have a picture in their mind of what a Johnson Amendment violation would look like on the left. But the political reporters have a very strong idea in their mind about what it would look like on the political right. So that, as you said, just basically comes down to good religion, bad religion. Can you remember the press taking note of what we could be egregious or clear violations of the Johnson Amendment? There have been some. And once, every single time I've ever read a story on that, that was really top-notch. It was always done by a full-time religion reporter. It was always done by someone that covered religion, had probably read up on the Johnson Amendment, and knew what they were talking about. This is, I, I guess our, our listeners probably get tired of hearing me say it. Everything we do at Get Religion, one of our major messages is, you don't have to agree with everything professional religion writers write. I see coverage that I think is good, and a lot of it is good, and I think some of it's bad. But my goodness, the difference between political coverage related to religion that's done by religion writers and political coverage about religion that's done by political beat reporters is a day and night situation. This is a perfect example of a subject that you want to have a religion beat specialist covering it. So, yeah, I have seen some good coverage. I've seen many, many more stories, whether they mention the Johnson Amendment or not, the Johnson Law. It's clear that they think they're describing something 
really wild and important about religion and politics. But they just don't know the legal standards for this. There was a piece that ran the other day in The Guardian, and they had some quotes from a man named Mark Trudeau, once again, not a minister. And he's a part of this whole thing where they were doing the rallies around America for Trump and Trump candidates, the reawaken events. And boy, they used some wild language. And there were some clergy involved, but there were very few religious groups involved in this, even though the rallies had prayers in it and they had wild religious language in it. Let me read just a piece of that Guardian story for our listeners. Mark Trudeau, who runs his own swimming pool construction company near St. Louis, is more optimistic, saying, right now I'm hopeful. I think things are going to turn around. A great awakening is taking place. This obviously is before the the pink wave or the light blue wave or whatever the heck happened in the midterms. Like most of his reawakened peers, he sees the current politics in apocalyptic terms. The country is being taken away from us from within. This is good versus evil. Actual evil, as in satanic evil? Yes. Is God real? Is Satan real? Yes, I believe that, he says. Is Biden satanic? Quote, I don't know if he's actually satanic. He is compromised. He knows what the evil side is, the satanic forces that control him, tell him to do. And Trump, as a believer, I believe God knows the future. Trump was chosen. Even though he didn't look like a Christian figure, he was foul-mouthed and a playboy. It's obvious God knew what was going on and put him in. Okay, so, boy, I've, clearly the reporters who wrote that story, man, like, we got a gotcha. This is a classic example of white evangelicals doing horrible things in politics. Well, it's a businessman. They held a rally. As far as I can tell from church state law, if this rally was somehow advertised, was it a nonprofit event? As far as I know, Trump rallies are profit-making institutions which means you're not even dealing with nonprofit. You're dealing with free speech in a profit setting. So what was illegal about these events? Were they scary to some people? Yeah. Was it bad for them to talk about apocalypse? Well, they're saying it's a religious apocalypse when the primary message of the political left going into the midterms was basically you have to vote this way in order to save democracy. Well, I would call that a secular apocalypse or like you have to vote this way or we're going to lose the environment and our world is going to burn in flames. Oh, my gosh, that sounds like a Unitarian version of a Hal Lindsey novel. I mean, you've got wild language being used. And am I fond of it? No, I'm not. Is it illegal? Well, we have to find out. Did a church tax exempt? religious organization endorse a candidate by name and did they make a profit off of it somehow did they make a bunch of money without telling anybody what did they pull off the press once again it's good guys and bad guys and apparently the good guys are not capable of violating the johnson amendment and the good guys are not capable of scary apocalyptic religious speech only the right wing can do that I personally am not terribly fond of it in either setting. So if we took the language that you found at that, uh, I think it was a Branson rally, and you put it in the mouth of a pastor on Sunday morning, in particular the language to the effect that God has somehow chosen X. In the case of the rally, it was Donald Trump. 
you have a pastor saying from the pulpit, God has chosen this candidate. Well, let's just say it is Trump. God has chosen Donald Trump to be the next president of the United States. Is that an endorsement? I would argue it is, but that would be an interesting court case. And there are people, and there are people I respect a lot, who simply think the Johnson Amendment has to just be done away with because it's a limitation on free speech. Remember what I said at the beginning of this. If you're going to say religious nonprofits can't make endorsements and can't make speeches of this kind, are you willing to threaten the tax-exempt status of all the other nonprofits that are involved in environmental cases, educational cases, women's rights issues, racial issues, systematic racism, Black Lives Matter? Are you willing to challenge their nonprofit status? I think we could see some very interesting cases, based on what I'm reading, about if Black Lives Matters, the organization, was a nonprofit group. We're going to get in some really interesting court cases that people have courage about the amount of money that the leaders made and the properties they bought. And that's, once again, that thing you hear me say, is it fraud, is it profit, or is it a clear threat to life and health? Courts can start messing with religious free speech in those settings. And I would say the same thing for speech by nonprofit groups, all told. But what you just said, if someone got up in the pulpit and said, Joe Biden worships Satan, he's terrible, God wants you to vote for Donald Trump. Yeah, I'd call that an endorsement. What if he gets up there and says, we live in a dark and dangerous age, and there's all kinds of people saying things like, and then he names a couple of the issues that Biden endorsed. And if those things become reality in our nation today, that would be horrible for the church, and we could lose our freedom. Now, was that an attack on Biden? He didn't mention Biden, and he didn't endorse somebody else. But did everybody in the pews know how to decode the language? Probably. But was that a violation of the Johnson Amendment? I would say it wasn't. Can you see why people argue about this so much, how vague and hazy and foggy the differences are between these different types of events? I don't share their belief, but I can understand why some people think they just you just got to do away with the amendment altogether and give churches the same right as any every other nonprofit to speak their mind. And of course, Donald Trump, hasn't Trump promised if he's reelected, he'll do away with the Johnson Amendment? I think he's pledged on the record of being in favor of that. So finally here, what should the news consumer be looking for when these headlines pop up, like you have listed in your column, that are raising at least media concerns about endorsements or near endorsements and the various scenarios you've laid out in churches? Well, they've got to listen for names. They've got to listen for explicit partisan commentary with the names of candidates. That's one of the things you need to look for. Do the reporters realize that there's a difference between doing a sermon about why the Catholic Church believes abortion is wrong and a Catholic priest doing a speech that says you can't vote for the following guy because of what he believes about abortion? Those are two different kinds of statements. There was a piece the other day from the Associated Press that some of our listeners may have run into. The headline on it, and there was a religion writer involved in this, the headline was, as midterms near clergy preach politics and civics lessons. Now, this article, I would say, was actually a pretty good article. 
But the key is they showed examples of what it sounds like when religious liberals talk about politics and religion. What does that language tend to sound like? And then they gave you some examples of what it sounds like when conservatives do. And I would say that that's really helpful. Did this story kind of make it sound like the conservatives were more dangerous? Yeah, a little bit. But that's the main thing. I guess the two things I think our listeners need to to really listen for the most. Are the names of specific political candidates involved in the remarks by the religious organization or from the pulpit or whatever? That's a crucial thing. Partisan, nakedly partisan politics. The second thing you need to ask about the coverage is, do these journalists seem to have some understanding that people on both sides of the political aisle use very similar language in some cases when discussing these issues? But yes, the religious right people tend to be a little bit more explicitly biblical and a little bit more colorful. But I'll tell you, I've heard some stem-winding sermons by conservative black preachers and liberal black preachers, and they were using biblical language in pretty much the same way. And of course, you've got centuries of tradition in the black church related to that. And the, the press seems to think, well, it's okay when black churches do it because they've been doing it since Reconstruction and, and the slave church and all that. And historically, that's right. But that doesn't mean it's okay when one church violates the Johnson Amendment and another church that happens to be a white evangelical church or a Catholic church doesn't. And meanwhile, I mean, good grief, let's not start trying to separate mosque and state when it comes to political language in the context of Islam. This is a very complex issue, and I guess the takeaway here, listen for the names, listen to see if they cover both sides, and also realize this is a really tough legal case. And in the end, we may someday find out that the Supreme Court or somebody might rule this whole Johnson Amendment thing was a violation of the First Amendment. That's a distinct possibility. Terry Mattingly is Senior Fellow at the Overby Center for Southern Journalism and Politics at the University of Mississippi. He's author of the weekly On Religion column for the Universal Syndicate and the book Pop Goes Religion, and he's founder and editor of Get Religion. Terry, thanks. Very glad to be here. Thank you. I'm Todd Wilkin. I'll talk with you next week. Thanks for listening to Crossroads with Terry Mattingly. Crossroads is a production of Get Religion, part of the First Amendment projects at the Overby Center at the University of Mississippi. If you appreciate this podcast, please make a secure online tax-deductible donation at getreligion.org.